Yo, yo, yo. Welcome to Made to Think with your host, Ninjam. I have yet another special guest, guest jam number 14. Now, this guy is very special in my heart for several reasons. I met him in my first year of being in Ho Chi Minh. Um, I had um, a, a, an uprising DJ career, and at the time, I was just taking whatever gig I could find. And the uh, the 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 new Hard Rock Cafe just opened, and I I landed a gig there um, every every Thursday night. But I was also uh, catering for certain events, so I just remember this. Uh, there was some kind of fashion brand, Sophie Paris, I think it was, and uh, I met the guy that was organizing it, and we later became really good friends. And this guy's got an incredible story of recovery and success, and he's an incredible athlete as well, and a huge inspiration for so many of us. I would like to welcome my next guest. It's the one and only Nick John. Nick Johnson, how are you, buddy? Ah, I'm excellent, Adam. Great to hear you and good to see you. And thank you for your awesome memory. I was thinking, where did I meet this person the first time? Indeed, it was not at the football game. It was at Hard Rock Cafe. <laughs> so um, please, before we start, just tell everybody, where, where did you grow up? I was born in Sweden. I was educated in Australia. And then I lived and worked in Southeast Asia the last 20 years. Wow. Um, did you have like a pretty strict upbringing, um, uh, you know, like a, a decent upbringing, proper education, all that kind of thing? So uh, I, you can say both ways. So my dad was very strict. My mom was very loose. So I got pretty, pretty, you know, confused with all of that. And in the end, that didn't do me too much well. I was hopeless in school as a young boy. I was not focused. I was the naughty boy. And I was... You know, 23 years of age when I started to go to university. So I was perhaps uh, seven, eight years behind everyone else. Wow. How is it growing up in Sweden? Because it doesn't really get a lot of exposure. Um, is it? What's the pros and cons, would you say? Well, I, I grew up in a small town, 20,000 people. Uh, and at the age of 14, my parents moved to a bigger city with 60,000 people. And that felt like a huge place for me. And that's when I became a really naughty boy. I was 14. I was introduced to motorbikes, girls, alcohol, and my life changed with that. What What's the alcohol scene like in Sweden? I mean, it's not nothing like the English, I guess, is it? I would say it's, it's probably pretty similar. At those days, you know, you could buy alcohol, the low content one at the petrol stations, and it was quite easy for a minor to get it. Otherwise, people were making homebrew. Uh, vodka in the showers yeah so we were drinking all kind of shit it tasted awful but you got you got the job done isn't isn't there some restrictions in sweden about drinking it is that's why we had to brew it ourselves because you need to be 20 years of age to get the hot stuff or you can drive your car down to denmark where it's much looser <laughs> so what would you consider to be your first major life lesson well, I think major life lesson was actually at the age of 14, then moving from a smaller village to a bit bigger village or a small town, um, you know, leaving the safety behind. And um, I was okay in school before, but then when we moved to the bigger town, it was like starting all over. And it was really, really tough for me. So having been, you know, average and been quite well behaved, I sort of immediately became one of the worst students in class and then I was hanging out with those friends and therefore you know ended up in pretty bad company and getting into small petty crime and so on and it was tough I was you know caught by the police driven home to my parents and so on it was really embarrassing uh, but I was really lost at that time so it was really tough 
Wow. Okay, so what were your, your earlier interests that kind of got you out of that petty crime thing? Um, I, well, I started to work because I wanted to earn a living for myself. It was motorcycles that actually helped me because uh, then it didn't go so well with parting. And I used to uh, then save up money to buy a really good Ducati, the 916 model. I remember I bought in 1996, I think it was. And I, I used to drive far. I mean, when it was brand new, I would drive it all the way down to the Gibraltar in Spain, which is all the way for Europe, right? So I really enjoyed getting out, going on the long bike rides, and I felt some freedom then. So then I used to, you know, work more, saving money to go on those holidays and buying motorbikes. And, and that was a good balance in my life. And as I started to see then the world, I wanted more of that. I got the hunger and the taste. And uh, that, therefore, eventually, I, yeah, I, moved, I moved to Australia. How was your relationship with your parents during that time? Did you stay close? Quite neutral, uh, I would say. Uh, we didn't talk about feelings or emotions uh, so much. It was more, you know, logistics kind of conversations. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, how about books? Did you ever get influenced by books at a young age? Can you remember, like, the first book that really intrigued you? Yeah, I... I... I didn't read too much. I read some of the Swedish books, but I cannot remember, you know, reading any of the international books and so on, because also my English was really, really bad. It was only when I moved to Australia in 98, later on, I learned English and I got more exposure to international stuff. Okay. Um, now we'll get to what's going on with your sport career at the moment, which is just immense, but um what were you a sporty young lad uh were you competitive did you win any medals as a young boy no i i was pretty useless at sport i remember you know being quite light and small and uh i was not good at football i was not good in ice hockey i was too small i fell over i remember standing in the kitchen as an 11 12 year old trying to eat you know pints of ice cream to gain weight to become bigger it really didn't help i was still very small and light and and just you know Therefore, I didn't make a mark. So as soon as I was old enough to stop with sport, I just completely stopped it. And then I started to just play some golf and that was all I did. And I was okay at golf, actually. And that's one of the reasons why I later on moved to Australia as well. Wow. I've never actually been on a golf course. There, there was a guy that I met in Ho Chi Minh and um, apparently he's a golf pro. You probably know him. But um, I asked him, I went up to him and said, I heard you're a golf pro. And he said, yeah, I'm on my fifth wife. <laughs> <laughs> um now when did you start supporting liverpool you're from sweden and you're a liverpool fan how did that come about you're not you're a proper liverpool fan let me let me say uh well i i, I moved actually to uh, england and uh, london one year it was year 2006 2007 with my ex-wife uh, she got stationed there for a while and I was over there and I didn't really have a team, but all my friends were going to games and, you know, we watched it in the pubs and so on. And it just happened, actually. Uh, the, I think Liverpool did not have a good year, 2006, 2007. So it just randomly happened. There was no story, no inspiration, no one in my family. It was just uh, you had to pick a side and I was not going to pick Spurs, that's for sure. <laughs> um, did you get to travel a lot with your family? You know, um, I, I got to travel a lot um, and it, created a really good bond and it it triggered my love for uh, and curiosity to travel and live in other countries how about yourself because you've lived in quite a few countries now yeah no, no that was not the reason i mean i didn't travel too much with my parents it was the odd trip why i can remember one trip to new york and then remember some to spain and greece but it, well, that was not 
it, it was not why I wanted away. I, I just wanted away from Sweden. I wanted away from all the rules. I, I wanted, you know, away from uh, being parents, uh, parented and, you know, uh, and, and in all honesty, you know, I, I was not doing too well for myself. I was a construction painter and it was really by getting out by myself on the, my motorcycle on my own terms. That's what I enjoyed. And it was the freedom and I wanted to chase that freedom. Interesting. I've met quite a few people from Sweden and everybody seems to pretty much have their head screwed on. When you talk about these rules, can you elaborate a little bit? What do you mean by that? And what's the difference between Sweden and other countries in Europe? Well, I can remember that it was very strict and you mentioned it before. Indeed, you, alcohol is only served in the government licensed store and I was against that. And then it has all the norms of what is acceptable or sociable acceptable and what is not. And I can remember, you know, being sort of 24 years of age or so home from Australia, you know, having a having a lunch one day and a pint of Guinness and that rumor spread to my mom, you know, and that was not socially acceptable to do that on a weekday. And those kind of things, you know, just maybe it's small time and small town mentality. And I, I just couldn't handle it. I I somehow was hungry for something more. I want, I, but I couldn't really put my head on what it was. I remember starting as a 22 year old applying for jobs in Dubai and looking externally and so on. And I only fell short due to my English skills at the time. Oh, interesting. How many languages can you speak now? Well, uh, <laughs> not too many, actually. Uh, it's mainly just Swedish and, and, and English. And I think all the Asian languages, just a few words to get around in a taxi. So these rules, um, you would you say that the country's too organized for like a rebel like yourself at that time? Yes, I think it was. Yeah. Um, okay. What would you say you learned the most from your parents? Well, even was, even today. Yeah, it was certainly to work hard and that the easy way is not always the best way. And uh, I think, uh, you know, they were hardworking and uh, I'm a hard worker myself and Perhaps it's no wonder I was born on May 1, the Labor Day. <laughs> so did you, did after school, did you go through the like high school and then college and then university or you went to university later? Did you skip all that high, higher education? Yeah, so I skipped all of that and uh, I just did a short, uh, basically a course in uh, construction painting. So I was a construction painter for about five years in Sweden. Oh, so why did you choose that line of work, I mean, that line of study? decent pay and also uh, it, it just seemed something simple something basic where i didn't need to study too much and i could start to earn money right away and it was pretty good money i uh, i then took on a lot of courses in that and i did uh, you know the dangerous jobs i did epoxy i was working in nuclear power stations and so on and the salaries were good and we're talking you know uh, <laughs> uh, we're talking about when i was 18 19 years of age and I could uh, get 5,000 US dollars in a month. So it's quite good money back then. So you pursued the money rather than the ambition, right? Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about, you know, what motorbike could I buy with this? What car could I buy with this? Or how could I travel with this money? Now, in hindsight, if you could go back in time, what do you think you'd study now? Well, I did go back to university, but it was only due to a motorcycle accident. I had a crash and I was not, uh, I was told by the doctors not to continue working because I had neck injury and so on. So I had to go back to school and, and that's, that's the reason why I eventually started to go to university. And even so, when I went to Australia, 1998 to study, 
I didn't actually plan or intend to study at university. I went there to learn English and I signed up for a three months course in English because I wanted to get a diploma so I could uh, get the jobs, you know, the painting jobs, the painting instructor jobs in Dubai and so on and earn good money there. I had friends who went there and I saw the pictures of them, you know, uh, driving around with a Porsche in Dubai and so on in the late 90s. Uh, and that that attracted me. So that was the reason. But then once I was in Australia, uh, I, I found the golf courses were good, the beer was cheap, and uh, I really enjoyed life on campus. And that's when I, you know, I saw other students there studying and they asked me, what do you study? I, well, I'm only here for the English. And then as wow. it happened, I ended up doing two bachelor degrees and a master there. Um, and, and, you know, coming from Sweden, that would you consider yourself a sociable person like or a bit of a hermit? No, I think definitely I'm an introvert. I, I'm very comfortable in a small community with one on one or with a few close friends, but in a big setting I'm, I'm i'm not so comfortable i'm more comfortable these days but i didn't used to be unless it was in a bar and under the influence of alcohol yeah when i was a dj i was extremely uh extrovert which you call an omnivert <laughs> and then i become more introverted as i got a bit older because i was seeking more knowledge but now i'd say i'm an, an ambivert in the middle um now um, did you have any early ambitions aside from like riding your bike? And could you could you see yourself becoming what you've become now, which we'll get into in, in a moment? So, yes, there were some signs of this uh, around 12, 13 years of age um, in Sweden was quite common that you sell magazines or newspapers and you hand them out and so on. And I signed up to do that for my district where I lived and I quickly rose to become one of the best salespeople in Sweden and earned quite decent money from that as a child. Um, then I thought, you know, can I sell something which is higher markup and bigger value than just newspaper and magazines? And this is, uh, uh, we're talking, you know, 1990, the, the law, so 1988 and so on. That's when the first personal computers came out. So I actually became a distributor at age uh, 13. Uh, to sell uh, Commodore VIC-64, uh, the computers, and even the VIC-20s before, and then the Amiga and the Ataris. So I bought them from Stockholm in quite big quantities, and I sold them in my local community for a markup of about 20-25% markup. So when I was 14, I was quite rich. I had made a lot of money. And already then also, before I turned 15, when you can buy a motorbike legally, I had already bought brand new I had brand new stereo and had a lot of money, too much money to know what to do as a 14-year-old. So that was some early ambition in entrepreneurship and, and finding and hustling and dealing. That's amazing. I had um, a paper round, which I started when I was about eight. And then over time, I grew it into like several districts. And I did a little bit like Puff Daddy. He did the same thing. He got all the districts and then hired his friends to help him out and give them a cut. Very good. Um, now, you're, you love music, right? Um, what what got you into the whole party scene and what, what was your first clubbing experience? Yeah, so when it comes to music, I, I definitely love music. It used to be a heavy metal. It used to be ACDC, Iron Maiden. I flew all around the world to see them. The, the craziest flight was to see uh, one gig in New York where I flew from Ho Chi Minh City, business class, by myself with Emirates, 
to New York to see the the first gig of a new tour with Iron Maiden. I I I stayed less than 24 hours in New York and and flew back. So um, definitely music. I still listen to Iron Maiden. I love metal and so on. But I also like party music. I love the energy around that. And if it's one genre that really stands out, then it's trance. That's the music yeah. I listen to still today. One or two hours a day, I listen to trance. Yeah, yeah. When I first met you, uh, when you used to come around to my house, you'd always put some trance on the TV. <laughs> I, yeah. I tell you what, you'd like Tiesto and everything, right? That was the era. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Um, what was your first club experience then, and where was that? Well, or festival. I, yeah. So. In 2006, 2007 in London, I lived and worked there in the PR industry. I had a lot of fun. So it was Ministry of Sound. Uh, some other clubs at the time was quite popular, if I remember right. But otherwise, before that, also in Australia, uh, up in Brisbane, some fantastic clubs and one called The Family is still still around today as well. Um, and it, even then, then it was not so much trans at that time. It was really techno. And it, there's something called The Valley, I think, if I remember right, in Brisbane with full of techno clubs and used to fall out there when the day the sun was up the next day. So work hard, play hard, right? That was it, yeah, as long as you can. Yeah, and keep a balance. <laughs> now, yeah. um, have you ever been fired? Yes, I have. So uh, I moved to Vietnam from London in 2007. Uh, with Oriflame, a uh, co Swedish cosmetic company. And uh, yeah, I was not uh, managing the relationships internally good enough and I was let go. It was a big blow to my ego. I had worked really hard to get that job. I went through an interview process and out of 3,000 candidates, uh, you know, and a lot of interviews and so on, uh, I was selected. And uh, when I was let go, I, I really, really lost myself. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to admit it to myself or to anyone else. So I, I had a very, very tough period after that. And I had for many years, that was a big, big, big uh, scar in me. Yeah, that's around the time I met you. You always seem to be, um, you know, in and out of places and a little bit uh, head cloud. Um, I couldn't quite figure you out. But um, now, what countries have you, 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 how many countries have you worked in so far? You mentioned London, you mentioned Australia. Where else, if anything? Vietnam. Yeah, so, yes, so, and also in Bangkok, Thailand, and uh, in Jakarta. Um, yeah, so that's it. And twice in, in, in Vietnam then, yeah. And when you was in Jakarta, this is where you met Donna, right? Your wife. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Now, can you, can you tell us what happened with that? The interesting story. How did you how did you find this princess? <laughs> yeah, so I, I lived and worked in in in, in Jakarta, and uh, yeah, my my previous relationship had fallen off. I was divorcing from a thirteen years relationship, and you know, being in Jakarta is quite a good fun town for that. But I was still trying to balance the athlete life, work and party life. And then uh, a lady wanted to interview me for uh, a TV channel because I was uh, cycling like crazy. And uh, there's a, there's a, something called the Pacific Place in Jakarta, which is basically it's a, a few hotels. It's a, it's a roundabout, uh, basically. And it's one kilometer loop. And I used to cycle there starting midnight. And uh, still today, I saw on Strava, no one has done as many loops as I have. I did 180 kilometers circulating that building. So I would become quite known in, 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 in Jakarta at the time. So she wanted to meet me about that. And yeah, we met. And then, uh, you know, it was very difficult because uh, her, her family and her being Muslim and I, I was still married legally on a paper. So 
it was extremely complicated. We basically had to run the country, which is why we came back to Vietnam a second, uh, and I moved back there a second time, and she came with me. Yeah, and I met Donna in Vietnam. She was a singer, and we ended up doing a few uh, uh, DJ sessions, and Donna was, um, you know, singing with me, which is quite interesting. Um, now, the cycling, that's something that I got into, and the reason I got into cycling, well, first I started walking. It was because I basically had a mind melt. I had a mental breakdown. And um, I, I, I was suicidal. I thought that was it, game over for me. I couldn't see any way out. And then I just started going walking. I discovered that if I go walking further and further and listen to podcasts, I can, I can like clear my mind and learn things at the same time. And then I didn't have any money for a bike. And, and um, old Tim from Jasper's gave me his sister's bike, which at the time I didn't realize was too small for me. And I was doing 100K on that. Um, yeah, but it got me out of a pickle. So is, is that what happened to you with the cycling? Well, I, I started to do running and that also worked for me, but the body, you know, as we age, it's too hard on the body to just run. So I had to do diversify it. And therefore I also start to swim and, and cycle. So that's what I do still today. And it's easy on the body when you mix it all up. So that was the reason. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was about balancing life as well, because uh, I could party all day long and all night long otherwise. And if I, if I don't have something else and it was just becoming too much and I, struggled a lot with that during my time in vietnam how to balance yeah it was yeah. either either all sport or all party um okay so when you came to vietnam in 2007 you was working for the swedish company but you got fired when i met you is that your second job or is that the same company you're talking about no, that was another company and I stayed with them for five years and Sophie Paris and it's basically a competitor with Oriflame, a French competitor selling handbags and so on direct. So I, they wanted to open up in Vietnam. So I helped them with that. And then after done it successfully in Vietnam, they actually promoted me and moved me to the head office, which was in Jakarta, where they were selling $300 million of the handbags in Indonesia a year at the time. And I worked with them on the expansion plans and that, but just as the everything was done very nicely for them and things were going well, they were acquired and a lot of us were let go. So there I was let go a second time. This time I was not fired because of any wrongdoing. It was just the internal restructure and, and many things. So that was second time I completely lost myself. And that, that led me then to my divorce and uh, I ended up in the worst depression I ever had in my life. So, you have a child um, and what happened? So you was living in Jakarta with your family and yes. then she, she moved back to Sweden. Was it? Yes, that's right. My son was then five years of age and I had been married 13 years. And uh, yeah, I would say the loss of the job was the trigger for all of those things. I pushed everything I loved away from me. It was just too painful. I couldn't deal with anything. How do you deal with that then? I mean, I have a son here and, and God forbid if I ever get separated from him, how, how do you deal with that? I can't imagine. Yeah, well, I felt that I need to deal with, you know, getting a new job myself because uh, he was going to be taken and he was taken out from international school. We didn't have any house allowance and so on. And I was terrified, you know, how can I comfort for all of this, at least back home in Sweden, you know? Uh, uh, my ex-wife could get a job and they could put him in a school and at least he have those the basic needs cared for while I felt there was too much pressure on me I couldn't deal with all of that so I said basically why don't you move home first and I find another job and then I found a new job a great job by the way with a medical company over there as a GM 
and I did really well, but I was constantly worried. I can't remember being on the call, you know, and saying that, well, I'm not sure that the result is not so good. Maybe they pulled the plug soon. So because I lost my job twice, I just had no, I didn't feel any safe at all. And I was constantly wondering what. Well, this is, this is the, this is the, the fear of being in a sales job as well. I mean, it's, it's never ending fear really, is it? Trying to hit targets and get that salary. Um, so when you're in Vietnam, I, I remember you, we, we hung out quite a lot. I used to run the bar and I'd often see you in the bar and you, you never caused any issues, but I could see that there was something troubling you. You, you would, you do what I've done in the past and just drink until you, you can't drink anymore. And yeah, it's, it, it's horrible to think back on those days, but so you, you basically hit a, a real all time low of depression and um, just, yeah. I don't know if you were suicidal. Did you feel suicidal at any point? Well, at, at that time, indeed, uh, I mean, I, I come from having good paid jobs and having it all sorted for, and then I jumped from job to job and I, you know, I was not paid on time and I sort of have huge financial difficulties. And with all of that, it just grinded down, down, down. Uh, while Donna's career, and we were together then, uh, she was doing well. Her singing career was okay. So I lived for her. And I helped her a lot with her career, which she's grateful for. And I'm grateful to today, but it came at the cost of my own well-being because things were going so shit for me. I thought I just had dedicate all my passion and energy to help her. But that with that, I, I had to compromise myself and I didn't talk to anyone about my inner feelings. I didn't seek help and alcohol was my go-to to deal with those emotions. And if we don't put ourselves first in our lives, if we care for other things, uh, then eventually something got to give. And I, I wouldn't say necessarily I was suicidal. I can never remember having a thought that I, you know, would make plans to kill myself. But I sort of have almost given up. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I just couldn't be bothered. Uh, and it went as bad indeed that I needed many times even to have that morning drink the day after just because I was too shaky. And that, yeah, I remember you coming in, D2, having morning drinks, and that's that's a, that's usually a sign. What was the saving grace between you and Donna then? She's a Muslim, and, you know, you're out of luck, you're out of money, you're drinking in the early morning. Um, why did she stay with you? Yeah, it's a good question. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and Bless her. Yeah, we moved to Singapore, and uh, I wanted to get well, uh, because uh, in Vietnam, perhaps not everything is available. Uh, and... I, I started to seek help. I started to, I told Donna how I felt and that I needed support and she helped me. She went with me to the doctor. She went to me with a common friend over there and, you know, and, and she's an action person. So once I said something, she made sure that this was followed through. And then as soon as I was exposed, as soon as I had explained my feelings and the help was there, I had like a V-shaped recovery already from the first day. It was like, uh, as they say, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. And that literally is the feeling I had. So already within one or two weeks into recovery, it was like I was exposed and the help was there. Everyone was giving me sympathy and support. And I felt fine. And, and that, that has just continued. And I'm now coming up to six years uh, into my recovery. And it's multiplies the whole time. I just cannot imagine how much better I feel. And it's literally day by day for so that, six years. Yeah. Just for the listeners that six years, you haven't drank anything, right? That's right. So was your problem just beer? 
No, as they say, you know, in all these recovery programs, and many listeners have probably heard that they call it twelve-step program. The yeah. first step is to deal with the, the the drug or the alcohol or the the food or the gambling or social media, whatever the issue is, whatever the addiction is, is only the first step. The yeah. eleven other step is about the thinking, and I had not been given a model how to think until then. Uh, how to deal with emotions how to deal with anger how to deal with resentments that is what the steps are and mm. so therefore it doesn't matter if you're an alcoholic or you you spend too much on social media we actually all need to go through those steps and and, and so that has been my guidebook from there on were you an alcoholic i mean were you were you getting drunk every day uh, I think uh, as an alcoholic doesn't mean that you're getting drunk every day. Some people can control it for weeks and then they have big blows. But for me at the end, yes, I was a day drinker. I was a morning drinker and I needed that or something else like Valium or whatever to calm my nerves in the morning. So definitely, if, uh, if you're looking back at that, definitely I, I was an alcoholic at that time. Now, you just mentioned that there was no help in Vietnam. Um, you're talking about like AAs or groups that you can join. Um, is, is there anything for people in Vietnam that they can, that can look for that you know about? Yes, there are those networks there as well. Not as spread out as in, in Singapore where, you know, where it's a lot of it. And it was still there in, in, in those times. But I guess I was too scared and avoiding it also. And there was some friends who, who were talking about it, but I, I don't know. There was just no action there, not during that time anyway. What what advice can you give to anybody that's listening now that might think they have got a problem, but they haven't quite realized it? Yeah, I mean, seek help. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be exposed. The anonymity and the confidentiality is very strong in these networks. And it doesn't matter that if it's drugs or alcohol or something else, uh, all those programs are there. And uh you can talk these days also to psychologists and therapists uh, all over the world online. Uh, uh, back those 10, we've been talking, you know, seven, eight years ago, it was not as common and as easy. Now you can make all these appointments online and have them anonymous. So, yeah, just just seek help and, and speak up and if there's some issues there. I mean, what, what would you say are the signs of your own health that, that, that you need to be looking out for that you might not realize you've got a problem? But what would you say are the signs that you know you should go seek help? Yeah, I mean, we, we all, the, the obvious ones are weight loss or weight gain or not not eating a healthy diet and then just lack of energy or if you cannot sleep, you're waking up in the middle of the night. All these kind of, of issues are there. And, and if I knew how good I would sleep by not drinking alcohol, I, I would. that is a good enough reason for me to stop. But for me, because I couldn't manage it to control it uh, and have it in in low quantity, and I didn't want to have it in low quantity. I wanted uh, I want it all right. So therefore, it just didn't work for me. For, but if someone can control it and balance it, then then go for it. Yeah, I would like to offer a little tip because I've been there. Um, you know, I was I was addicted to um, narcotics and I was drinking all the time. I was eating frosties during the day. I was just lazy, but. I was also creative at the same time. So I was actually producing a lot of stuff, which I'm using now. But for me, what I do is like when I meet somebody and they say, oh, I can't sleep. I'll say, well, how many beers do you drink a day? Oh, I drink 12. You've got to cut out all the bad habits to try and eradicate the problem. And if the problem doesn't go away after you've cut the habits out, then you should really seek some help. Um, and for me, I since I bought my Garmin watch, um, yeah, I can have, I basically spend the whole week trying to level out, making sure that my sleep, 
uh, is all in the green. And then just one night, it goes straight back in the red. And it, and it fucks me up. You know, I miss a day of training. Um, and then my optimum load goes down and then I start getting stressed. But I think having a Garmin watch or a device really can help you for sure. Now, I want to talk about um, what have you been doing? I mean, I've just done a 200K Audax uh, cycling race, which is a monster for me. But dude, what have you been doing? <laughs> Let's talk about your sport career now. <laughs> yeah, so I really enjoyed uh, doing marathons and triathlons and so on before I I, I had my crash, uh, mental crash and, and so on. But having repatched my life and then in sobriety, and as you say, you know, it's about having that watch and monitoring everything. And I say the first thing when we talk about sport is sleep. I measure it religiously. If I'm yeah. lacking sleep today, I will make sure I change things around to catch up on it. There, there. So sleep and rest is first for this conversation. Yeah. And that was very clear by the first coach I had. So once I came out of then, you know, stopped alcohol and so on, I also got a coach, Todd Gilmore, who used to live and work in, in Vietnam in District 2. And um, Oh, of course, yeah. I know him, the running guy. Yes, Yes, so he, I, 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 um, yeah. I just I got somebody. Uh, it was um, the MMA fighter um, on yeah, Joy, oh, the French guy Arnold. Arnold put me in touch with him because Arnold was seeing my stats, which are on a, a treadmill. But I was mm. kicking ass, and he, he put me in touch with him. But he's moved. Yeah, sucks. Yes, he's moved. <laughs> so so he did my plan and uh, started to help me and and guided me. You know, and I want to come back into doing uh, marathons and doing an Ironman race. So he trained me for the first one and. Then I got the taste for it because once you're in, in sobriety and it's much easier. And and therefore, you know, I, I just continue down this path. I just love the fact that you have three sports. That means you have three communities. You have your running clubs, you have your swim squad, you have your cycling buddies. That means that, you know, you spend a lot of time socializing with other people and moving your body and getting out there. And uh, these days I'm a firm believer that we should spend in average uh, three hours a day at least inside uh, the wilderness or in, in doing something outdoor it's still you spend 20 21 hours a day in this kind of uh, you know built up environment uh, perhaps it should even be the other way around that we are all the time in the nature and that had the huge effect on me mentally so the reason i do that is for the mental effect plus in my family also we have high cholesterol and i've been also testing my cholesterol for many years now and I tested with medication, I tested without medication by training and eating well, and I can actually keep it under control. My, my, many of my uh, relatives died in young age, men uh, for, uh, from heart attacks and so on related to this. And my dad is, is still alive, but he's had his heart attack and it, his cholesterol values are bad. I see the medication he takes and how he feels of it. So I don't want to go down that path. So for me, Every morning it's life and death. To, and I put in, as I said, three to four hours in average a day to train. And I really love it. So it's my social life, my physical, my mental, my emotional well-being. And then I also want to add that because I'm now an entrepreneur running my own business, when I'm in the space of training and exercising, then I'm the CEO. I have that strategic mindset. I have the distance from the business. The big, good decisions are coming. Then when I'm on my computer, that I'm working in the business. I'm the administrator, the manager and doing that kind of things. So that means that I can actually work in my business and run the business. So, so that's what really helped me. And, uh, and, and therefore I just keep going as long as I can now. That's an amazing story. I think something important there is when you mentioned communities, cause I I'm in a cycling community now, um, there's different 
uh, obviously different levels. I'm trying to, you know, go out with the advanced ones every now and again, but I, I, I don't burn myself out. I hang around with the people who are the same level as me. I basically don't make it stressful. I make it fun. That's the most important thing, I reckon. So you've done this, um, uh, when you mentioned as well that about your health, do you ever get your blood work checked regularly? Oh yeah, I do. I do uh, check it very frequently, yeah. and I now uh, and I used to as well when I before I had my my crash. Uh, of course, I worked in the medical industry, and we used to check the and have good sport doctors there, and so all the time. So I have good. good I, I know my records for fifteen years. Now, would you say it's a good idea to you know people who take a lot of supplements? Is it a good idea to first get your blood checked and then find the supplements that you might require rather than just taking them because of the you know whatever's possibly the latest thing yeah definitely i i, I check the see if i want to test and play with things then definitely i do a blood test first and then i test it and then do the blood test again to see if it really makes an impact or not otherwise you might just be wasting money is there any supplements that you would recommend just for people who like you know on the recovery or whatever want to get a bit healthier yeah so i take um uh, unicity they have products in Unicity, and then I take uh, also another one called Athletics Green. Yeah, uh, AG One. Yeah, I have the yeah. I I have Super Green because we can't get AG One here, but yeah, that's good. Yeah. What yeah. about like single tablets like magnesium stuff like that? Do you take all yeah, that? I take I take also magnesium, especially if I train at night, so you can sleep well and relax at night. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. How many medals have you now got? Um, I mean, you've done. Have you done ultra marathon yet? No, I haven't. I, I focus on the Ironman sport now and uh, the ranking was just out from last year. So I'm ranked uh, the fourth uh, best in for my age in Sweden and wow. I'm ranked 279 best in Ironman sport globally in my age group, which is top 2%. Uh, I'm going to try to climb up to the top 1% this year. So I focus on that series. I have a race in 13 days now uh, and then, then I have a, a series of races throughout this year. And I should say, in order to prepare for this, uh, and you might not even know this, Adam, but I actually moved to Phuket now. I live in an oh. Ironman training camp, perhaps one of the best camps in the world. Fantastic. That's my hope. I bought an apartment right in the camp. Oh, my God. Well, I know I can come and visit you. Um, what would you say has been the hardest challenge so far with all the sport events that you've done? Most mentally challenging? Yeah, so I mean, the hardest was before I gave up alcohol because then balancing these, it doesn't go hand in hand with it. Uh, and I remember even almost, you know, drowning in some of the swims because I'm cramping. My body was not ready for it. I partied until two days before a race. So that was the hardest. These days, you know, I love the complexity of planning for the races, everything from the nutrition to so on. And uh, as, so that is, that is, I think, it's the, it's the joy with it. And I'm just loving it. Yeah, I think for me, like, you know, I started out as just a rider on a shit bike that was too small for me. And when I looked at people doing 5K, I was like, how do you do 5K? And when I did the Audax 200, I'd looked into more of the nutrition. We got like the free tailwind, which I've never tried before, which keeps the salts in. So I didn't cramp up as much. Um, I was taking the little packs, gel packs, and obviously bananas and, and real food, especially nuts and porridge. Um, now, you, when you moved to Singapore, what, what happened next? You started working for a company, and, and where did that take you? Yeah, and uh, so I started to work for ETN, Executive Global Network, which is the company I, I'm with now. And I started as employed, but during the pandemic, uh, Donna and I actually, together with one Canadian guy, acquired a franchise right for Singapore and also for Indonesia and Malaysia. And we opened up those branches 
So these days, actually, I'm based in Phuket, Thailand, but working and running companies in Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia. So Donna and I take turns to travel. Uh, she's traveled more than me uh, to those cities. There's events. We, have, we do events basically every day. They're training and, and so on for senior executives. So you invested uh, uh, all your money into this franchise, took a risk. Yeah, basically, yeah. And, and how has that become successful? Well, uh, it's going well. We have about 900 paid members now, turning over about $2 million a year. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's not bad for a business uh, that you're sitting in Phuket uh, in, in a training camp and running. Amazing. How would you um, define the difference between living in Singapore compared to Vietnam? I've never been, so. Well, Singapore is more like uh, the West. It's more like Australia or, or Europe and very expensive. It was what I needed. It was, you can call it like my rehab. I needed five years there to really get myself sorted. Uh, perhaps after five years, I was ready for coming out in the in the wilderness again, which is where I live now. My love is in 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 in, in uh, the developing world. Yeah. So you you go to these places that are thriving to survive, right? Thrive to survive. Um, I feel like there's so many people in Vietnam. They just they're just coasting. They're not. It's hard to make money. It's hard to be successful. But it's so cheap. Um, but I'm starting to get that itch that I should go somewhere that fits more my creative style, if you know what I mean. Um, so what do you miss the most about Vietnam? Yeah, definitely my friends. Yeah, I, I had I had some wonderful friends, uh, including you and everyone else. And the community was fantastic. So I, I certainly miss that. Yeah, I mean, everybody definitely still talks about you a lot. We're always very inspired by your your amazing results with these Ironman competitions. And the big news is you're an author now, which is my dream to be an author. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, so because of the journey I had and with my recovery, and uh, I had just gone through you know, the loneliness, the isolation and everything. And then came the pandemic and uh, I started to share my story. I started to share my story and I gave a few keynote talks. And then as soon as someone heard my story, uh, they said you have to write a book about this and I didn't really you know believe them and so on but then I went on radio I had radio interview and so on and I started to think more about it and then suddenly a good friend of mine died in Singapore of suicide a man wow. from the UK who worked there in the HR industry and it was very sad he just came back from Mount Everest he's been climbing up to the base camp there so he had everything to live for and we just couldn't believe whatever happened. So that's when I thought, okay, now I have a reason to buy uh, to write a book. So it's really it, it, it's in, in in Simon's name the book. I wrote it for him and the family, uh, just as a call out to everyone who suffer from loneliness and, and isolation to to seek help. And uh, it's packed with uh, my story, his story, and also other stories of other senior executives, especially because those are the ones I'm working with. Uh, who've gone through difficult times and how to get out of it. So that's what, what is in the book, and it's called Executive Loneliness. And how's that doing? Selling quite a lot now? Yeah, it's been fantastic. It became a bestseller, uh, topping uh, men's health and mental health in US, Australia, and the UK when it was out in 2021. And uh, I'm, I'm speaking on the book, about the book, all over the world, two, three times a week, either online or in person. So I'm I'm flying around the world now to giving keynote talks and so on and workshops around it. I'm so incredibly proud, man, to have you as a friend. You're just inspiring me. Um, now, what else do you do in your free time? You're so busy, but uh, apart from, you know, doing all your training, how do you, how do you chill out? 
Yeah, so I don't. Uh, that's the thing. Donna, <laughs> Donna is joining me also for some of the trainings. Now she's uh, getting into swimming. She joined the runs. Uh, we, we, we just, uh, before uh, I jumped on here, Adam, we, we drove the car up to the, the dam up here and the local running group, and we ran with them. And I said it was great to spend 20 minutes with you. We had to in the car together there at least and, and so on. So it's not too much but, uh, time, free time. We don't have that. And But we, I guess we had our fun in Vietnam and now it's time to build business and so on. And uh, we're balancing it in, in the way that we, we, we really have quality time when we go for a dinner or something. We have that special feeling. And we went for a dinner on Saturday night and that might be the only dinner this week. It doesn't have to be all the time. Yeah, I think as well, like when we talked about all what happened with your ex and the divorce and all that pain and suffering, now you've come full circle and now you're living in Phuket. You must be overjoyed. Um, what's who, who's been who have been your biggest inspirations on your journey so far? Yeah, so there's multiple people and so on, but the the, the one that really stands out is um, Rich Roll. Uh, he's running a, my favorite podcast. He's covering a lot of the topics we spoke about today. He has a story like myself. Uh, he was drinking too much in his young years. He was a very promising, one of the best swimmers in the US. But he was drunk one night, fell down the stairs, injured himself. And then he, he said, yes, fuck this. And he, he jumped out of the swim team and couldn't work his way back in after that injury. Uh, he then went on to become one of the best uh, lawyer, best paid lawyers in the US. But he was never happy with that. He said that he had everything, but he was never happy where he was. And uh, he then went through a similar journey like me, sobered up and so on, and and, and really transformed himself. And he's today, uh, yeah, the, the leading figure, I would say, when it comes to mental health on men, especially, uh, and so on. Um, what life tips would you give to our listeners right now? Yeah, if anyone has some challenges on their mind, think about who they can speak with. Does it need to be a professional organization, volunteers? Or if you have a friend who you can speak with, I, I have fantastic friends and I had good friends in Vietnam, but we mainly played golf and were drinking and having a good time. And I don't think even to you, Adam, did I ever share some big challenges with you and asking for your help? Probably not. You never asked for my help, but you did come to my house once and you opened up. I think it was when Liverpool got pumped by City. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do recall no we were you definitely were we, we were more than just friends mate and uh just before we wrap this up um I want to ask you what's next for you now you, you've pretty much done everything what's next yeah so I'm writing my second book now and it's called about executive vulnerability so it's sort of a follow-up on my first book about you know that we can lead uh by vulnerability as a business leader be more open be more honest both uh, at work, but also at home. I think it's about how can you as a leader or a family, you know, have good conversations with your children so that they open up to you and, and just uh, to live in a different way. So that's a book I'm very, very passionate about writing and hopefully it's out next year. How How is your son, Percy? Has he been following your footsteps with fitness now? Must yeah, he was in Phuket for two weeks over Christmas and he is uh, a bit taller than me. I'm 180 centimeters, 190 centimeter. Wow. And he joined our swimming and he joined a run. Yeah, so he, he was doing really well. And uh, uh, it's his birthday uh, in two weeks and I'm going to buy him a bicycle so he can cycle in Sweden this summer. 
Amazing. Well, listen, I know you're a very busy man. It's took us ages to get this podcast together, but I think that's an incredibly amazing uh, success story. It's so positive, so inspirational. You're an amazing father. You're a great husband, a wonderful mentor for so many people. I am so proud of you, Nick, and um, I just can't thank you enough for coming on here. And I hope all the listeners can take something from this. And I'm always here. If anybody wants to jump on this podcast and have a chat with me, I'm not a saint, but I'll definitely uh, get you moving again. So I would love to say thank you very much. Chuck Mundamoy from Vietnam, and you keep rocking it, baby. Say hello to Donna for me, okay? Thank you so much. Have a good one. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick. Good night. Thank you for listening, everybody. Cheers.